Hello and welcome to Peace of Mind, a podcast about mental health, psychiatry and research at Cardiff University. I'm Paul Gauci, the Communications Manager at the National Centre for Mental Health, and today I'm joined by Professor Jeremy Hall, who's the Director of the Neuroscience and Mental Health Research Institute, and Kat Williams, who was diagnosed as autistic last year, uh, is an autistic parent and blogs to raise awareness about the issues. Um, hello and thank you both for joining us. So I don't know if you want to uh, briefly introduce yourselves. So. Kat? Hi, yeah, I'm Kat. Um, I was diagnosed as autistic last year. Um, I'm a mum to autistic children. My eldest, Matty, um, I can talk about today, he's given me consent. So he got diagnosed when he was five or six um, and it was following his diagnosis and going through all of that that everything sort of fell into place for myself as well so I have him to thank for my diagnosis really and yeah I do try and raise awareness I'm, I'm a self-advocate I've also advocated for other people and I do uh, write when I can to raise awareness of um, how autism affects my family and other people using mainly the social model of disability. Okay. Great. Um, and uh, Jeremy? Yeah, hi. Uh, so I guess um, I'm a psychiatrist. I do research into uh, a range of mental health related issues. And uh, I also uh, contribute, I have a clinic uh, every week where we um, offer a diagnostic service for people with possible autistic type difficulties, particularly in adulthood. Okay. And so um, just sort of briefly, what what is autism? How would you describe it? Yeah, actually, there's been some flux and change in this recently. And I, I think yeah, this reflects a lot of psychiatry where we're trying to describe things and our descriptions are perhaps a little imperfect. But what we do recognize is that there's a group of people um, who have difficulties in two domains. and They used to be considered three, but two have kind of been lumped together. So the, the first ones are in social interaction and in some of the subtleties of language uh, and sometimes those language difficulties can be more pronounced uh, and so the social interaction is possibly one of the areas that I see most of uh, and that can be really difficult for people challenging if they don't really get the nuances of uh, interacting with other people which is obviously such a big part of our life and then the other uh, element is if you like a preference for routine and a kind of set range of activities and things to be ordered uh, and people can find that quite stressful in their lives if for example um, there are changes of, of appointments or routines or structure that are unexpected and you can you can imagine that if you have difficulties in those areas uh, difficulties might be too strong a word but if you have personality traits in those areas then it can make um, it can make some forms of daily life more challenging I should say that they can also, in some instances, be quite helpful. Like, you know, uh, you know, it can be very helpful for have somebody in certain occupations who's very uh, structure aware, very uh, ordered, uh, and uh, you know, perhaps, for example, very mathematically competent, which is sometimes goes along with this area. So it's not always a disadvantage, but there are some areas that can bring people difficulty. I think probably the other thing to say is that, you know, it, 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 uh, whilst we have the one term autism, it does capture a, a kind of range. Um, and you get people, uh, uh, you know, the more severe range, into the range you've got kind of learning difficulties or other intellectual difficulties. And, and then some people who, who don't have that. But we don't tend at the moment to, uh, and the kind of newer classifications don't tend to distinguish between that in terms of the overall diagnosis. That's something that has been um, a welcome change in the autistic community because um, while diagnostically functioning labels are no longer given out, um, colloquially they are still used, but they are quite harmful because you either get presumed competence, so you get somebody who um, is assumed to be high functioning purely because they either didn't have a language delay or their language delay was relatively slight, so they've caught up quite quickly, and they don't have um, a co-occurring intellectual disability. So because they can be academically bright and they can be eloquent, it's assumed that they can then deal with everything else. But mm -hmm. actually, you can have somebody 
who fits that category, whose sensory difficulties are actually very pronounced, that would incorporate myself and my son. We both use ear defenders. We both have um, a lot of um, sensory issues. My eldest has got pica, which is related to his sensory need for mouthing objects. Unfortunately, it does mean that he eats them as well. And because he is academically incredibly bright, it means that the LEA are finding it quite difficult to um, conflate a very academically high achiever with somebody that actually has got quite significant support needs. And it means that he doesn't get the support that's needed. I'm finding it incredibly difficult to get support for my needs because, again, I'm a mum. Both my children have got disabilities. I am a single mum, and people look at that and go, well, you must be very competent then. And, yeah, in a lot of ways, I am. But there are other things that I hugely struggle with. Sensory issues are one of them. Um, Most of the time, if I do food shop, I need to have somebody with me because I get incredibly overwhelmed because there's too much choice. Mm -hmm. They change things around. Um, Professor Hall was just saying about routine. When supermarkets change the aisles around, it is I've literally abandoned shopping Mm -hmm. in the shopping trolley and just left because I haven't been able to cope with that. But I am also very intelligent, so it's difficult to conflate the two. Then when you go to the other end um, of people's perceived idea of what the spectrum is, because people think that it's this linear thing, it's really not. It's more of a circle with jags that go in and out because you can be very competent in one area and need support in others. Um, But you get people who don't communicate verbally. um, So maybe they use PECS or SIGN or they use an AAC, which is Augmented Alternative Communication Mm -hmm. System. Um, and people assume that because they don't communicate verbally that they have got an intellectual disability or that they are need 24-hour care and things like that and actually there are some very very um, intelligent highly capable adults who are autistic who don't communicate verbally um, they use social media and they use uh, blogging to get their views out a lot of them have written books and it's a shame that people put this massive sort of pin in how somebody communicates as to what their functioning labels are but it's also one of those things where if somebody is presumed low functioning it's also slightly offensive because it almost puts less worth on that person so just because somebody does have very high support needs it doesn't make them less of a person and they will have their own strengths and I think that people need to look beyond their perceived functioning labels and look at the person and even though we all very much um, agree with identity first language rather than person first language within the community so we're autistic rather than person with autism we are all still individuals and it is a neurological difference it can be disabling a lot of the time because of society rather than because of an inherent issue with being autistic like professor hall said there are certain jobs which are absolutely amazing for autistic people if you can stick with routine and things like that other jobs may not be so great because it'd be changing every day but it's just finding something that supports the person and and allows them to live their best life really i think you touched on something uh important there as well in the other kind of symptoms or features that people have uh and they, they vary. And I think, you know, we, I think it's a mistake, my own view anyway, is that it's a mistake to think of autism as just kind of one thing. There is a kind of variety. There's a, there's a range of presentations we've already touched on. Yes. Um, but, you know, there is, in my mind also, there's good reason to think that these particular symptoms, the social and kind of preference routine, do go together. So there is something yeah. um, coherent about it too. But you get other features you've touched on one there which is the sensory features and i see that a lot in people that i see you know um can cover a range of different sensory domains actually but sensitivity to light and noise are particularly common uh, and, and really can be quite marked and maybe tell us a little bit about how 
the brain is dealing with information coming into it that they have so pronounced, if you like. Um, so uh, yeah, that, that, that's one other area. Another area that we've done some research on here uh, in a slightly different context, but is is motor function uh, and kind of clumsiness and things like that. And uh, yes. you know, when I ask people about this, it, it, you know, it's really common. And I think probably in many people's day-to-day -day lives, it, it doesn't impact on them so much as adults, but I think it impacted on people a lot as children. Uh, Hugely so. So I was eight before I learned how to ride a bike. And as an adult, I can't ride a bike. I am the exception to the rule that you never forget how to ride a bike. <laughs> I definitely have. Yeah. Would be dangerous to put me on one now. Um, my son, who has said that I can talk about him, his motor skills, um, his combined skill is on the second percentile. Like I said, this is a very, very academically very clever little boy mm. who is 10 and can't ride a bike. Um, he is incredibly um, impacted by his motor function. Um, his handwriting is really poor, not through lack of him trying, but because he just can't manipulate the pen in a way that everybody else can. And um, it is interesting that um, Professor Hall brings that up because amongst the autistic community, a lot of us have either got dyspraxia diagnoses or DCD diagnoses or would fit the criteria but won't get given the diagnosis because we're told, well, you're already autistic, so what's the point in another label? My son's actually in that category. He meets the diagnostic criteria, but he's not being given the diagnosis because he's autistic. I think that's a, that's a real issue, isn't it? Uh, sometimes referred to a bit pompously, perhaps, as diagnostic overshadowing. But the idea that, you know, you've got one diagnosis, so you don't get another one kind of thing. And uh, uh, and, and I think it points, you know, my, my experience uh, has been that, you know, off, as I say, there's often this kind of range of things that go together. They do tend to go together more often than, than by chance. So there is some meaningfulness in it. But, um, but that there isn't a simple separation between... Uh, autistic type traits, motor traits, for example. Uh, sometimes we see people have, uh, I think this is particularly the case in childhood, overlaps with symptoms that might otherwise be called um, ADHD or attention deficit. Not always, but you definitely mm -hmm. see that overlap. And then different uh, uh, overlapping symptoms or comorbidities in adulthood um, are often uh, depression and anxiety in particular, uh, but not only. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so, I, I mean, I, you know, we, and, and it's perhaps a slightly unfortunate feature of the way that diagnosis is set up and also the way that services are set up, that these things tend to be kind of considered slightly separately. But really, we're talking about, I guess, subtle changes in, in the way brain develops and functions between people. You can, you can say that in some cases that might be essentially a kind of range of personal difference, individual difference, or, or to some people it's a more severe difference, if you like. But there, but um but that, that doesn't manifest itself in just one area. No. Uh, and although the diagnostic criteria focus very much on kind of social and language and, and uh, repetitive behaviours and preference for routine, uh, it's rare that you see those things in isolation, I would say. Yeah, and I agree with that. Um, I mean, I do have a dual diagnosis, so I've got an ADHD diagnosis as well. Um, my son hasn't got an ADHD diagnosis, even though he ticks a lot of the boxes, because they feel that though that presentation relates more to his sensory differences. So he is a huge proprioception and vestibular sensory seeker. So when, um, for people who don't know what those are, vestibular is um, the um, m your motion, so um, swinging, rocking, um, that sort of motion. And proprioception is knowing where your body is in relation to the space around you. you kind of balance. Um, and yeah, things, and things. Yeah, so yeah. when you're a proprioceptive and vestibular sensory seeker, you are the person that is flapping and jumping and rocking and literally bouncing off walls. So it does very much look like, particularly in little boys, like ADHD, yeah. but actually it's about being able to unpick that and finding out, is that actually a separate diagnosis or is it related to what's already been found? The only danger as a sort of lay person um, that we see on the ground, whereas medically and from a psychiatric perspective, that makes a lot of sense, you know, 
um, if you don't have the label, for want of a better word, it's incredibly difficult to get access to support. Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, going back to the difficulties with getting support for my son, because he doesn't have a dyspraxia diagnosis, it's been disregarded from our request for support because it's almost saying, well, if he was dyspraxic, he'd have the diagnosis. And even though we can evidence with a report that he meets the criteria and it should just be needs-based, unfortunately, because there isn't enough money, there's not enough money in health, there's not enough money in education. So the actual diagnoses do make a huge difference mm -hmm. to accessing support. Yeah, I, I wholly endorse that. And I think, you know, that the, there is this issue about having a label and it being, um, even though I very much recognise as somebody who practices in this area, the imperfections of that label. And in fact, if one's being really honest, the imperfections of many psychiatric diagnoses. Um, nevertheless, they are a, a portal, or an access way. And I think that you could say exactly the same for the diagnosis of autism itself, really. It's, uh, you know, I, I don't believe, and uh, I don't think I'm going to be easily changed from this opinion, that we're looking at you know one uniform entity here but having that label can help a range of people and uh and and you know open the door to some access to services and support i mean if 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 it's of interest yeah you know, well i didn't start working in this area till about five years ago and uh and i came when i moved down from scotland to to cardiff and uh i was working out what would be a you know, kind of interesting clinical area to work in uh, and spoke to colleagues here and uh, you know, Mike Owen, or my colleague, uh, suggested that I might take an interest in this area. And I, I, I would say that I was a little bit sceptical at first, okay. if I'm being honest. I thought, well, who are these people who are going to be diagnosed with you know, this developmental condition in adulthood, who haven't been kind of picked up before, and if they haven't been, surely it'll be very minor, and there's not much we can do for them anyway. And, you know, is it really a great use of my time? I'd be honest. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And, uh, but, I, you know, I'm always up for trying to see what could be useful so i started actually my, the first clinics i did were out in uh, in quint and uh, i was really uh, struck quite early on by uh, what a big group of people there are who haven't had diagnoses who do have a significant range of difficulties that i you know definitely impact on their lives often their families are worried about them too and you yeah. know how they're going to be supported and things and uh, and you know, have these kind of core areas of difficulty, but also often and variably these overlapping problems as well. And and also that increasingly how it's been possible to offer some support for that. Uh, well, I, I say increasingly because I'm pleased to say that the Welsh Government's put some more funding into this area so we can now offer a bit more in terms mm -hmm. of support and uh, uh, through the integrated autism services. But... Um, but, uh, you know, and, and so I, you know, I became a, a convert, if you like, to the yeah. importance of this kind of work. Yeah, it's, um, it's funny you should say that because it can be quite shocking to people um, when you say you've been diagnosed as an adult because they've got the same idea. Well, surely if it was a problem, you'd have been diagnosed as a child. But um, I, for example, was under educational psychology in school. I was a bright well-spoken girl from you know a polite well-spoken family who didn't get into trouble always wanted to please clearly had emotional regulation difficulties which is why i was under educational psychology clearly had um executive dysfunction um clearly had social communication difficulties but this was the 90s and girls didn't get diagnosed as autistic in the 90s unless they had an intellectual disability and a pronounced speech delay because what was then Asperger's was literally written in the DSM as a boy's condition it was it was in there this is this affects boys very rarely girls so nobody ever suspected that a girl could present with what was then coined Asperger's same with ADHD. Girls did not get ADHD diagnoses ever at that age. Um, okay, I might be a bit hyperbolic, you may have found a few, but there definitely weren't the number of girls being diagnosed as with boys. And some of that is to do with um, 
girls generally being better um, at masking difficulties. And that's not just um, autistic girls or um, girls with any other neurodevelopmental condition. That's across the board. Girls are very good at mimicking generally. And I am generalizing, I know that, but so they do tend to get missed because they mirror play better than boys do. So whereas autistic boys would tend to play side by side, girls would try to get involved and copy what somebody else was doing. So to somebody watching from the outside, it looks like they're joining in and that they're fine, but actually they're, they've got this one person, generally it's one person even in a group that's their person that they copy. And if that person's removed, then you actually get to see where the difficulties lie. Um, I don't know if that's something that you agree with, Professor Hall, but... Yeah, no, no, I think that's right. Uh, let's come back to the differences between men and women, because that is really interesting. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask you something uh, yeah. for your opinion in the meanwhile, which is you know, the, the, the diagnostic label of Asperger's has kind of faded out a bit. It's not in the more recent mm -hmm. uh, manuals. Did you think it was a useful thing? Or are you pleased that it's gone by the wayside? I'm pleased that it's gone by the wayside. Um, I've got a couple of reasons for that, but the main reason is going back to the presumed competence. Mm. If you've got an Asperger's diagnosis, people see you as a very, very, very clever, quirky person, and that is all they see. So when you say that you um, find some aspects of life quite disabling, you're almost ridiculed for it because it was like, well, no, because you're clever and you can, again, you can talk and you're eloquent and so you can't have any difficulties. Whereas I think having an autism diagnosis, um, where I know that can be quite difficult for some people to um, accept that I've got the same diagnosis as their child who may have a significant intellectual disability isn't communicating verbally and is has very high support needs. I think that's where support needs come into it. So having an autism diagnosis, because actually the core components of autism, regardless of any other co-occurring conditions, they are, you all meet the same criteria really it's the co-occurring conditions that make a person more or less able to um, to live in our society. So support needs are a, a better way, I think, of um, discussing what a person needs because you can have somebody who meets the old Asperger's criteria, I'm one of them, who could still have low support needs but you could actually have somebody who met the criteria for Asperger's who has very very high support needs and that can actually fluctuate as well because before I was diagnosed I had a huge mental breakdown I was incredibly incredibly ill um, I was um, self-harming I attempted suicide I was I was for want of a better phrase very low functioning, you know, I was not this person that you would imagine if you saw Asperger's or high functioning written down. And I think that goes to um, demonstrate that labels based on intellectual and verbal capability are not a reflection of how somebody is coping in day to day life. Yeah, I think that's a really good summary. And actually, it's quite helpful for me to hear that because I've, you know, in so, I must admit, I've, I've, I've seen both sides of this and, and some people have found that diagnosis helpful. And I guess at times I've found it helpful because, uh, you know, it kind of perhaps gives a, a clearer description. But I really take your point about how you don't want to, uh, you know, give a, a false impression of the level of people's needs. So it's really interesting to hear that. Thanks. Mm. Uh, the thing about... Uh, gender or, or sex differences uh, is uh, is a complicated one, to be honest. Uh, and again, you know, I guess you know you like to sit there. You know, people very you know think that because you've got the title professor, you've got the answers to everything. <laughs> I definitely don't feel I have the answers to everything. And these, you know, there's quite a few complicated things in this. But 
I, I guess I could give a few observations there, and great, it would be great to, to have your further thoughts on it, really. But, yeah. uh, but I, I mean, there is a fund, I, I think we know from basic research, and it's not really that surprising. I mean, firstly, it's not surprising at all there are differences between men and women. I think we can all agree on that. And, and, and one area that there is a difference is in things like social interaction and emotion processing. Uh, and probably a big part of that, a big part of what social ability is, what you were talking about, which is the ability to mimic or kind of understand or copy and other people's social uh, behavior, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and so it could be that, uh, that, that there's, a, if you like, a degree of protection, at least in terms of the way that things are seen yes. uh, for women compared to men. So um, I, I don't think that's complete. And I still think, you know, if you, if you, if people have symptoms and they have symptoms and they merit a diagnosis on the basis of those but i think it it can be subtly more difficult difficult sometimes to pick these things up in would you agree i would agree but i also fear the generalization and i know mm. that particularly in a in a podcast where we're limited for time you can't go into all of the different nuances mm. um and i agree generally that there are fundamental differences um but i think a lot of those and maybe not necessarily on a sort of neurological basis, but on a um, socialization basis. So boys and girls are socialized very differently and they are, regardless of what a, a parent will say, they are brought up differently. So, um, and then the diagnostic criteria was written with boys in mind. So, I mean, one of the AQ questions, it talks about cars and playing with um, the wheels of a car and mechanical things and so a girl wouldn't necessarily fit that criteria because they may not have ever had cars bought for them so you know if, if asked that question you know when playing with cars did you play with just the wheels or did you drive them around they'd go well no I didn't do that but then you need to go into well what um, typically female things can we then change this question to to encompass what their experiences would be so you know for me it was um i had dolls and i played with dolls but i didn't play with dolls in the way that everybody else did i lined them up and gave each one a spoon of food and then would go back to the beginning and it would just be that on repeat so even though to somebody doing a quick glance it would be oh look you know they're playing with their doll feeding them but it was this very copied i'd seen somebody else doing that with a baby and it was very much one two three four five one two three four five sort of thing um but i also think that it's important to understand that it's not girl versus boy presentation and actually you can have some boys who present in a typically female way and you can have some females who present in a typically male way and there is a danger of particularly actually the boys presenting in a female way them getting missed mm. because they don't tick all the boxes that a typical autistic boy ticks so then they become the child and i quote that's difficult to unpick but actually if you look that there's a couple of different ways autism presents rather than labeling them male and female then that might actually be a bit more helpful um but yeah i mean i score very highly on the aq i score within the male range on the aq i think my score was something like 47 out of 50 so you know from that respect the the difference in presentation on paper isn't different for me but in practice it is because I was taught social niceties probably a bit more than say I would have been if I was a boy and I was taught um, different coping strategies and yes I probably am better at masking and mimicking other people's behaviour than a typical man would be but that's not to say there's probably a man out there that's much better at it than I am so yes it's important to understand there are differences as long as you don't ultimately only categorize the different sexes in those areas yeah i guess you know there's there's still a bit of an outstanding question to my mind about whether there is fundamentally uh sex difference in rates it seems at the moment that there is but i don't you know i don't think we have perfect knowledge no um 
And if there is, why would that be the case? There have been theories out there. I mean, one of the well-known ones, I'm not saying I especially subscribe to it, but it's well-known, is is uh, Simon Barron's Cohen's theory about male brain development and the exposure to androgens and the like. Uh, you know, there's controversy in that area, really. And mm -hmm. I think we just don't truly know the answer at the moment. I've got another question for you, okay. uh, which is, you know, what do you, what interventions do you think are helpful? So, having had your diagnosis, mm -hmm. there are some there's some degree to which just having a label is of some benefit, uh, and I think that can be a considerable benefit actually. But did you find anything else particularly helpful, or have you seen other things to be helpful? For me personally, I found it quite difficult to access services. Mm. So. Um, I think because I have got very good insight and I'm because I'm a bit of a compulsive researcher, I'm very knowledgeable on autism. One of the only things that could be offered to me was a post-diagnostic course mm. and at risk of sounding sort of big-headed, I already knew what they were going to teach me, so I I couldn't go anyway because it conflicted with my um, parenting responsibilities. But I don't think I'd have found it particularly helpful. Now, for me, um, two of the most um, disabling aspects for myself are my sensory issues and my um, executive dysfunction. So, Do you want to just explain what you yeah. mean by executive dysfunction? So, um, executive function is somebody's ability to organize their lives basically so it's um your internal clock so knowing roughly how long it takes to get somewhere or knowing how long roughly you need to get ready for something it's also your ability to prioritize tasks it's your ability to move from one task to another um, it encompasses quite a lot of sort of internal things that a lot of people i think take for granted um, Whereas I struggle with those things. Time is one of my big issues. Didn't learn how to tell the time until I was well into high school because it was a concept that was completely beyond me. Um, and even now, um, sort of on the way in, I was joking that I'm always either really early or really late to things because in my mind, um, I, I live in Cardiff. If anything is happening in another area of Cardiff, in my head, it takes half an hour to get there. Mm -hmm. And that is regardless of whether or not it's down the road or across the other side of the city because I just can't seem to fathom that, you know, there are th such things as traffic and possible roadworks and things like that. Um, so it's your sort of mental planning and then execution of those mental plans. Um, I find it very difficult to go food shopping. I've already touched on that. But it's because you've got to consider... Um, expiry dates on food so when you're planning your meals you've got to make sure that all of the elements for that meal all expire within the same length of time and then you've got to think well do I have any of those ingredients at home and it's it's being able to deal with all of that so that's an area I find very difficult and again because I'm well-spoken and intelligent people find it really baffling that I can struggle to you know write a shopping list and things like that um with my sensory issues um like I've said I do use um ear defenders um I've got in-ear ones because as much as I am incredibly proud to be autistic I I know that people look when I wear um, typical ear defenders again because if they know me they can't um, conflate having quite pronounced sensory issues with my um, outward presentation as it were um, you know I've got I'm touch sensitive there are certain um, textures that I can't touch I can't touch jelly it makes me wretch it's awful awful stuff um, but it's the internal um, sensations that I struggle with the most, I would say. Um, so my uh, sort of, from a layperson, quite newly identified sense is interoception, which is your um, your internal um, systems telling your brain, you need to have a drink, you need to have something to eat, you are cold, you're hot, you need to go to the toilet and things like that. I literally forget to drink and I literally forget to eat. Um, and I'm using the word literally 
um, not hyperbically. So, uh, you know, my partner will um, message me asking if I've had a drink yet today and it'll be sort of four o'clock in the afternoon. And I'll say, no, I haven't. And it's a very, um, very specific thing that I have to do. So um, I did bring a coffee with me this morning because I had in my mind, I'm not going to be home for quite a while. So you must remember to take a drink with you. But actually, if I was at home, I probably wouldn't have had one by now because I just don't get that feeling of being thirsty. I don't get the feeling of being hungry until I'm ravenous. Um, there's no sort of build up or if there is a build up, I can't sense what that build up is. So again, my partner will be, oh, you're quite snappy. Have you eaten anything? And I'm like, oh, no. And he's like, you're hungry right now. And I'm like, oh, but I don't feel hungry and I won't have eaten anything all day. So again, it's quite difficult for people to think, oh, but, you know, you've you've got children and you make sure they're fed and watered, you know. How can you forget to do that for yourself? But if you don't have those signals or your brain is misinterpreting those signals, it's very easy when you're wrapped up in other things to forget to do those things. And... Um, I'm also one of those that leaves going to the loo until the very last minute because, again, I don't notice it until it gets to that sort of almost critical point, you know. So I guess for you, um, kind of practical support from the people around you and kind of understanding how you need to adapt your own routines has probably been some of the most helpful. Oh, definitely. So I do have a lot of um, support from my partner. My friends are great as well, but my house is basically one massive visual schedule because um, my eldest has got um, huge difficulties with his executive function and organizational skills as well. So we've got visual timetables on the walls, we've got visual schedules. So the we, we've got a morning schedule, which is, you know, get up, have breakfast, get dressed, brush teeth and it's it's necessary for them to be up in our house because otherwise we generally do forget to do one of those things and even though they do seem to be fundamental aspects of getting ready to go if they're not there we will miss one of them out and um you know obviously i don't want to be that mum that sent their children to school without brushing their teeth but if it's not written on the wall it's not going to it's not going to happen so i do think um visual aids and things like that are hugely important regardless of your intellectual um capabilities i mean it's called a visual when an autistic person uses it. It's called a reminder list when a neurotypical person uses one. So I think, you know, going back to labels, I think we just label things slightly differently. Um, and for my son, um, support, he's had a lot more support because he's a child and he got diagnosed as a child. So he's had input from occupational therapy. He's had input from speech and language therapy, um, physiotherapy. And they have been incredibly helpful. And what kind of occupational therapy input was particularly helpful for him? Um, he went on um, an intensive um, course. It was called the Little Ones Group, um, which is run in Cardiff. And that was basically for functional self-care skills um, and for fine motor skills. So uh, things like doing up buttons, cutting up food, um, preparing a very, very simple meal of a sandwich and things like that. And even though those aren't skills that he's um, fully, that are fully developed, they're still emerging skills. Um, he is better than he was before he had that. Um, it is mainly functional skills that OT have worked with with him. He hasn't had um, as much sensory input but he has had a sensory diet written which is not food related i need to point out a lot of people when i say sensory diet they think well why would different foods help with sensory input but it's not it's basically activities to do at specific times during the day to help with sensory regulation and he's found that brilliantly helpful and i look at what he's had and I do think, oh, if I was diagnosed as a child, I would have really benefited from some of those, from some of those interventions. Um, so I think occupational therapy can be really helpful, along with some kind of, for some people, things like some kind of psychological inputs tailored to specific areas, be that 
mood difficulties or be that things like social skills training um, yeah. but I do think the OT is really important and it comes back I guess to the point that we discussed a bit earlier about I mean a lot of people want to have an occupation or to mm. and everybody really wants to get on with their lives in some ways yeah. and uh, and I think getting help and guidance about how best to do that uh, uh, and you know that occupational therapy can really really help there I think so that's something that we've with the integrated autism service had more access to is kind of psychology and occupational therapy mm. and some other things like speech and language or dietary yeah. input as well and I, I think that's that's really good um I, I i guess it's probably worth mentioning as well at this point you know another Car- uh, cardiff-led project that we're you know very pleased about which is the engage to change project i believe it's called which yes. is uh, uh run by my colleague stephen bear which is about getting people into suitable employment uh, and uh yeah there's obviously a, a, a it varies a lot with the individual person but um that's another important area of overlap i think between adults with autistic type traits and that the ability of that project to help put them into suitable work placements and get more experience of that i think it's been a really great initiative supported by the lottery i think wasn't it? yeah yes uh, uh lottery funded um and we'll put we'll put information about the engaged change program on the episode page for this podcast yeah. uh, but basically if, you, if you've not heard of it no i, I haven't you... heard of it and i think things like that are really important because such a low percentage of autistic adults are in employment in yeah. paid employment yeah. and i'm going to say paid employment because a lot of us in voluntary work um yes. i used to do voluntary work um i've stepped away from that for the time being but people don't seem to want to pay autistic people for their expertise so people will um have events where they'll get um speakers and they'll pay the medics and they'll pay um the people who work in in mental health and then they'll say um we've also got an autistic speaker and they won't pay the autistic speaker because they're giving them exposure i quote and um it's almost like when um you you have artists and people say oh will you do a painting of me and they say yes it costs a hundred pounds and they say oh no i'll put it on my social media for exposure and um i think that one of the the issues is um going to the social model of disability a lot of workplaces are not set up for autistic people and it's incredibly difficult to stay in that environment um before i left paid employment to be a carer for my boys um who do have more support needs than I do. Um, I used to work in a law firm and I was good at my job. I got my job done well. But if I was asked to um, to drop something, um, if something else came up that was more important, I find it really, really difficult to stop what I was doing, to move on to the other task. It would be very distressing. And I also found that um, I would do what I thought was a good job um, and the outcome was was a good outcome, but apparently I didn't talk to the people on the phone in the way that I should have. And I found that quite confusing because I said, well, did I say anything wrong? Well, no. Did did um, did I upset them? And it's like, well, no. And it's like, well, I don't understand what you mean then. And I think one of the ways that um, this can be helped is actually by businesses employing autistic people to come in and almost do a sort of walkthrough. So walkthrough, pointing out all of the things that could cause sensory issues. So if, you know, it's a, an office building that's full of flickering fluorescent lights, pointing that out and saying, well, did you know that we can actually hear those fluorescent lights? You might not be able to, but that's really distracting. But also to um, basically explain how an autistic mind works and how you know whereas you could maybe tell um a neurotypical person to drop everything that they're doing and do this task right now maybe just even if it's a 10 minute warning and say look something else has come up you've got 10 minutes to finish what you're doing or get it to a point where you can leave it but then i need you to move on to the next task because again even though people who um you know autistic people can be very um intelligent and have very high powered jobs you know you've got autistic doctors you've got autistic solicitors you've got autistic teachers which i think there should be far more autistic teachers to be honest i think it would do the world a a lot of good um 
they still have the difficulties that come with living in a world that's set up for neurotypical people. So, um, yeah, that was an interesting noise. Um. <laughs> I think there's some volume switch left on on my computer, for which I <laughs> provide a unexpected sensory interruption yeah. for you there. Yeah. <laughs> Don't mind talking about sensory yeah. interruption. Sorry about that. No, um, but um, I think that um, the... Um, program sounds absolutely brilliant and if it helps autistic people get into paid work then that's amazing but I also feel that projects like that should have input from autistic people to actually I think it's very easy to learn from from books and from doing a job and obviously people are very highly qualified and I'm not disputing that at all but actually unless you are autistic you don't know what all the nuances are and all of the you you could say these are the sensory things that would possibly affect people. But actually, if you get an autistic person in, they're going to be the one that spots the thing out of the corner of their eye that's going to be a major distraction. So I think that that could be one way of getting autistic people into work is employing them in the jobs that are helping autistic people, you know, peer support, um, be the ones that deliver the training, be the ones that um, talk at conferences and actually, you know, pay them. (laughs) I think there's definitely an opportunity for you to set up a business there, you know, in terms of uh, of guiding companies. I mean, we did. A, I had a uh, a colleague, a, a clinical trainee, who did uh, um, some work looking at uh, responses from people who'd mainly been seen in our service or other similar services nearby. Uh, so a colleague, a, a young doctor called Jack Underwood. And it's maybe just worth mentioning a bit of what he found because it, it echoes some of what you're saying really about people's experiences. So, um, so uh, and he's written this up. Uh, it's, it's been published in the in the British Journal of Psychiatry this year. So um, he found that there were low rates of employment, um, despite you know my experience being that many of uh, the people I see clearly could be in employment if the right support and employment were offered. And I think that's really a big issue and a big challenge it's why i highlight these things like occupational therapy support and uh, you know the engage to change project and the like because i think it's really important because all of us well we all have our I mean, you obviously working really hard as a carer at the moment and yeah. that's a very important occupation in itself but but we all have a desire to be doing something useful yeah. and i think it's really important that people get that that opportunity the other thing we highlighted and um and i think this is important you know, for, I guess for me as a psychiatrist as well, is that you do see these high rates of other problems in mm. people who, uh, you know, get a diagnosis of autism as an adult. And top of the list, and, and over kind of well over 50 into the 60% of people that we've seen would report having had depression or significant anxiety symptoms. And that's definitely my experience of seeing people. And, and there are a few other studies out there that support that. And of course, your yeah. own experience... Yeah, my yeah. Um, I've um had clinical depression. I'm not in a depression at the moment, which is great. Um, but I have got um very very high anxiety. Um, it's it is quite disabling. Um, and it's quite difficult again to get support for things like that when you're autistic. And um, it's because you have symptoms that would feed into um, or a a mental health condition that would feed into primary mental health but you're actually too complex a person for primary mental health to deal with so then you're passed to community mental health who actually don't have the resources to help with something like anxiety because they've got so many people on their books with very very significant mental health conditions Um, the other thing is as well that a lot of people particularly women get misdiagnosed with personality disorders so I um, had a working diagnosis a few years ago of borderline personality disorder um, but then it was felt that I didn't actually meet the diagnostic criteria because there is there are certain elements that I don't meet um, such as um, the emotional liability being um, relating to, to triggers rather than it actually just being an inherent part of me and there are there are other things I won't go into right now um but um I'm also um in the process of being diagnosed with um PTSD which I know a lot of autistic um adults have um 
diagnoses of PTSD. Again, I think because um, when something traumatic has happened in the past, we process things very differently. And if we haven't had specific support in how to deal with trauma um, relating to being autistic, and of course we won't have been if we haven't been diagnosed before then, then those um, symptoms sort of do tend to linger and, and feed into that. So um, I would say that actually, um, other than being a carer and I'm, you know, I, I love my children and will of course prioritize them before anything else. I would love to be in paid employment. Like I genuinely really wish that I was in paid employment. Unfortunately, it's hard to find a job that fits around school hours because realistically that's the only time I can work. Um, but actually my biggest barrier to employment and the reasons that I got signed off um, when I was in paid employment um, were all relating to mental health rather than yeah. to inherently, well, I wasn't diagnosed then, but what you would see as inherently autistic issues, they were the co-occurring mental health issues. Yeah, no, I think that's important. And uh, I guess for me in my role, that's something that I hope I can bring a little bit to the assessment and support of people. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously it provides some opportunities for other specific interventions because, you know, be it psychological therapy or be it medication or whatever, there are ways that we can help. Another area that we do see some of it's rarer, quite a lot rarer, but we do see a little bit of overlap with things like um, uh, paranoia and psychotic symptoms in some people and with OCD, which I think is not surprising really. Given some no, of that's yeah. not surprising. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, the other thing that, that Jack looked at, and I guess is another area it's interesting to think about, was um, could we understand anything about the... Uh, causes uh, of presentation uh, and the risk factors if you like in um, in people presenting particularly as adults so there's been much more research on people presenting as children uh, for a whole host of reasons really so so I uh, you know the work we did I guess adds something in terms of looking at adults and uh, because of our linkage close linkage with the National Center for Mental Health and a lot of the people who come through the clinic have also uh, contributed to the National Center for Mental Health cohort we were able to have a look at some things and, and one thing that Jack did look at was was um, genetics um, and I guess the picture w at least within the the number of people that we were able to look at was to my mind quite interesting he he didn't find uh, or we didn't find evidence for kind of more severe genetic changes that you sometimes see in children presenting with autism. But what we did see, uh, even though the sample wasn't that huge, we were able to detect a, a clear signal of what we call polygenic risk. Those are variables, genetic variables that we all have, thousands, nay millions of them, but that perhaps some of them subtly increase particular traits. Uh, mm -hmm. And some of them have been shown in other samples to be associated with, with autism. And we found that they were more prevalent in our adults with autism uh, mm. as well uh, and so it suggests that it's that kind of general genetic makeup that's maybe contributing uh, a bit what and i think it would be really interesting and, and one of the things that jack wants to go on and look at a bit more is whether that also contributes to some of the com you know the co-occurring yeah. symptoms as well yeah. yeah i mean if you just look at the number of adults that are being diagnosed uh, being diagnosed and they've got autistic children and you know obviously i'm not a medic and even if i was a, a diagnostician but if i look at my family there are definitely people in my family tree that i can quite safely say would probably meet the criteria mm. for a diagnosis and when speaking to other members of the autistic community they're saying the same thing you know that it's autistic parents have autistic children they can see the signs in other members of their family so um i know that the autistic community very much subscribes to the it's genetic um the only thing that we're concerned about with the research is what that's going to be used for because if it's used to um aid diagnosis and to help provide services then that's brilliant the danger is that you get into the um antenatal testing and then you get what's been happening with um, uh, Down syndrome is that parents are then choosing to terminate pregnancies and obviously 
you know, it's a woman's right to choose. I firmly believe that. But I also feel that people can be quite scared of autism. I mean, look at the damage, you know, Wakefield did with his, you know, non-science. And people are scared of it. So there is that worry that we have as a community that in the wrong hands, the research is going to have sort of negative outcome for our community, even though it it's helping us um, in the at least in the short term, because we spend our days battling people on the internet that are telling us that we're vaccine damaged or that we're full of mercury and things. And there's only so many times you can tell somebody that they're talking nonsense, um, even if you show them all of the papers discrediting that. Um, You know, if there was a firm piece of research that we could say, hey, look, it's actually genetic. Can you go away now? Um, That would be helpful but you know as long as our sort of fears are dispelled that it's not going to start becoming one of the uh, amniocentesis tests you know so there's quite a lot in there and I'll, I'll try and just add a few comments um one is just to say one other thing jack found which i think you'll find interesting is that as well as the kind of depression and anxiety and things like that another thing that we found very high rates of were of uh, particular types of neurological presentation especially migraine headaches um, mm, and yeah it is interesting isn't it because yeah. again it it points to this you know very real brain-based uh, mechanism uh, which uh, and uh, that's something we're going to look into a lot mm. more and the rates were really high actually so that, that was an intriguing and I must admit slightly unexpected finding yeah. so uh, and as, uh, yeah so in terms of the genetics I mean the genetics that we found in the adults uh, and certainly in the people that we looked at you know because it's many many small genetic changes rather than one big genetic change that's really not so suitable in any case for Mm. prenatal testing so we can be a bit reassured in that area on the whole even the more significant changes the biggest uh, class of which these are more often seen in children presenting with developmental difficulties uh, called copy number variants which are a gain or a loss of a kind of appreciable chunk of of genetic material we all have a few of them actually but some of them are more associated with different presentations Uh, even there very few of them are absolute you know i guess in down syndrome if you i mean i'm i'm not making a comment about whether one should or shouldn't do different types of prenatal testing but just in down syndrome if you have try you know three chromosome 21s then you are going to have down syndrome but with these these uh variants you know they perhaps alter your risk a bit, uh, some more than others. But they, they're not deterministic. They don't mean that you're absolutely definitely going to get a given condition. So that, I think, makes uh, makes this whole area very complicated, actually, but certainly leaves me also being a bit uncomfortable about, you know, kind of prenatal diagnosis and testing because, you know, it may well be that, um, that you know, people with those particular variants are going to be uh, relatively fine. Mm. Um and uh, and certainly not necessarily severely disabled. Uh, the other thing to say is that, you know, whilst genetics, I think, is certainly important in the context of autistic traits and is probably why we see these things run in families to some degree, uh, that, that you mentioned yourself, uh, that we don't think that it's only genetics that can, can contribute to risk. And uh, there are other early life factors that we know can be important. Um, there is a small but appreciable increased risk of developing autistic like traits if a baby is born very prematurely or very low birth weight for example we don't fully understand the reasons why and there are probably other early life factors that can affect risk as well so you know various obstetric complications for for, for example <clears throat> so it's not a, it's not a kind of i think on the whole we're not in the majority of cases anyway looking at kind of genetic determinism Yes. We're looking at a genetic contribution, perhaps. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that is reassuring. And yeah, but it's a complicated uh, message to it get is, yeah. out, isn't it? It so, is yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, especially sort of on a podcast when you're talking to somebody who isn't a scientist. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it is it is reassuring um, to hear that, and I'm sure that other members of the autistic community would be reassured by that message as well, mm. because um, you know we are very proud of who we are, and I think that. Um, as a community we are probably one of the proudest sort of 
community of um, people with what's classed as a disability. Um, and it is quite upsetting that there are people out there that would like to, for want of a better phrase, get rid of us. So it's mm. nice to know that um, in this instance, science is sort of, it is on our side. And even if those parents uh, were of that frame of mind, they wouldn't be able to use it anyway. So that's <laughs> good to know. I think that's true. I think it's really good also that you mentioned the Wakefield and the vaccination stuff, because I don't think we can say too often what you said, which is that, you know, there has been no proven link between vaccination and autism. I can see why some people might have been seduced by this as a possible explanation, because, of course, people are vaccinated at about the time that also autistic symptoms can become more apparent. But there is no link in terms of the rates of vaccination and the rates of autism. So it's really good to reassure people that because there are definite risks of not being vaccinated. Well, yes, there are, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably a, a, a good place for, for us to end now. Um, so thank you both for coming in and contributing to this podcast. I think it's been a really, really interesting discussion. Um, just to let people know, if you're listening and you want to find more information about any of the topics we've discussed, if you go to ncmh.info forward slash podcast, you'll find information on this episode there. And if you have enjoyed listening, please do leave us a review. And that's our cue to go. So thank you very much. Bye.